I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest American Fiction Oscar Contender Edition. It's Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. On today's show, we kick off Oscar season when we make sure we cover every major nominee in the run-up to the awards ceremony. We start with American Fiction. It comes to us via writer-director Cord Jefferson. It's been heavily marketed as a satire about race in the book publishing industry. But it's also, as one discovers in the theater, a heartfelt family dramedy. It stars Jeffrey Wright, and it's been nominated for five Oscars, including Best Actor and Picture. And then Mike Judge, he of Beavis and Butthead and Silicon Valley fame, returns with a stop-motion animated comedy in the know. It skewers a hopelessly narcissistic NPR host, voiced by Zach Woods, and you can find it on Peacock. And finally, you know, there are Oscar snubs, and then there are Oscar snubs. No Greta, no Margot, no Leo. We discuss some glaring omissions from the nominee list. But first, joining me today is Sam Sanders, the esteemed NPR vet and host of the podcast Vibe Check, which drops every Wednesday. Sam, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. I have been a fan for a very long time, and I'm excited to be chatting with y'all this episode. But we'd love to hear that there are longtime fans out there and yeah. that you're one of them is extra special. So it's it's awesome and very kind of you to step in. And of course, uh, Nadira Goff is also esteemed and she's the slate culture writer and uh, exceedingly, exceedingly old, ancient even friend of this program. That's a something, something fop. Uh, Nadira, as always, just a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always so fun to be here. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's dig in. Monk Ellison is a novelist and a professor whose interests and talents were led to believe are hopelessly non-commercial. Apparently, he likes writing novels based on Greek tragedies. When a series of major life upheavals places him in financial straits, he contemplates being something he's resisted thus far, a self-consciously black writer as opposed to simply a writer who happens to be black. What follows is a gutting satire of the American publishing industry as it tries to square its bad conscience with its desire to move new product. Combined with a deeply felt family comedy drama, the film is based on the novel Erasure by Percival Everett, and it's the directorial debut from Cord Jefferson, who also wrote the screenplay. Okay, in the clip we're going to hear, you'll hear Jeffrey Wright as Ellison. He's at a chain bookstore, and he realizes that his novel's have been placed in the African-American studies section instead of the regular fiction section. Here he is complaining to the store employee. Let's have a listen. Wait a minute, why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. Ned, you don't make the rules. All right. Um, that bingo is a great line reading. Nadira, let's, uh, let's start with you. I said this a couple times because it really struck me how the trailer for the film made it seem like a straight-up satire. Something quite different on actually viewing it. What do you make of this film? Yeah, this film is, as you were saying, sort of, in my opinion, two films in one. And the part I liked more than the very funny, and I, I do want to say it is very funny, satirical meditation on Black representation in the publishing world and art writ large, is actually the family drama and the depiction of a failure to generate some generational wealth amongst a Black family and this sort of really interesting dynamic between the siblings when it comes to taking care of ailing parents and keeping the family together. And I found that to be more interesting than the satire that everyone, you know, is mostly focusing on. I really want to talk about Tracy Ellis Ross, whom I love, mm. who plays Lisa, Monk's younger sister, in this movie. And Lisa is a doctor who 
has stayed behind to take care of their ailing mother. And uh, the siblings, there's Monk, Lisa, and then also a third sibling named Cliff, played by Sterling K. Brown, who's amazing as well in the film. Um, But yeah, so Lisa, she's a black woman, and I believe that she's younger than Monk. And as a black woman who is the oldest of three siblings, I have personally had these conversations with people about uh, some of the responsibility in taking care of older relatives when they begin to need care. And there's a sort of ever-flexible line between whether or not you're forced to take the role because you're the eldest or whether or not you're forced to take the role because you're the most financially available or whether or not you're forced to take the role because you're the woman of the siblings. And I think that Tracy Ellis Ross, who has been in the industry for so long and is so talented, finally gets a role where she can balance some really nuanced expectations. And, you know, she balances not only the expectations, but the worry she has for her brothers and also the resentment of whatever answers to those questions that I said were that she feels late in her while her brothers can sort of carry on totally unaware of what she's sustaining and dealing with. And She's in the movie for a relatively short period of time compared to other characters, but I feel like her impact in that movie is so strong, and I don't think that enough people are paying attention to that specific part of it. And so, yeah, I think that's really where I want to start. I don't necessarily want to start with the novel or Monk or Jeffrey Wright. I want to start with Tracy Ellis Ross because it seems like that's such a foundational part of the movie to me. Oh, here, mm-hmm. here. I mean, in the little notes I have for my comment, I was going to start with her, funnily enough, because I totally agree she's foundational to the family story, which is in some ways totally central to the movie. She's a very grounding, very funny presence. Books change people's lives. It's something I've written never changed your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. My dining room table was wobbly as hell. Oh, my God. When your last book came out, it was, like, perfect. But, uh, Sam, let's turn to you before I start to babble. Um, Maybe start there about the mix between this satire and this family drama. What did you make of the balance of that? I think he did what he had to do. So I've talked with Cord Jefferson, who wrote the film and directed the film, on Vibe Check. We chatted for over an hour. It's in that podcast feed now. And I should disclose here that Cord and I are friends. When I was back in D.C. covering breaking news and politics, and when Cord was in D.C. as a journalist, we were in the same drinking circles. uh, And we hung out a lot many, many years ago. We've hung out a lot less since we've both been here in Los Angeles. But I call Cord a friend, and I've known him for over a decade now. And so I realized the more that I've watched this film and talked to him— had he just made a straight-ahead black family drama, none of us would talk about it. Yeah. When is the last time a straight-ahead black family drama got five Oscar nominations and as much buzz as American fiction got? Cord made the trailer he had to make to get our attention, and he drew us in with that and then gave us, like, two films in one. So I'm like, good for you, sir. Like, kudos <laughs> to you. You did something that is, like, actually really hard to do. I think that... My biggest takeaway from this film is that it has to do the exact same work that it is critiquing in the Mm -hmm. film. Core Jefferson is functioning in his career right now as the character of Monk has had to function in his career. Am I making things that are black? Am I making things that are white? I want to make things that speak to me, but I need white gatekeepers to like what I make. (laughs) And you're watching this dynamic play out with him making this movie. So I think that's really captivating. I do think if I'm comparing the family drama half of the movie to the racial publishing satire of the movie, I like them both, but I like the family drama better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think Tracy Ellis Ross is a movie star. And Mm. I told Cor this when we chatted. Um, I think that that wedding scene, and this is not a spoiler, that wedding scene towards the end of the film is just truly magnificent and brings happy tears to your eyes. And it's one of the best music posts in a film that I've heard in years. Mm. The song that they play while they're all dancing. Oh, yeah. We'll do the things together only love is do. Let love flow on, baby. It's called Let Love Flow On by Sonia Spence. 
I've been playing yep. that song nonstop since the film was released. Me too. I think this movie is subversively brilliant because Cord does a bait and switch and still gives you a good film. Yeah, I'm with both of you, I think. I, I came at it from a different angle, which is that satire is so flattening. It's a flattening genre or art. You know, you, you have to turn real human beings into caricatures, which sends them in the direction of being two-dimensional. But this movie is about a man who's quintessentially not a caricature and then makes himself into one. So in a way, you sort of need both films so that you have this, I think, very funny but ultimately somewhat broadly drawn satiric portion, which on a percentage basis may, may be 20% of the film. I mean, it's a surprisingly small amount of it juxtaposed with this completely realistic, in some ways very wrenching, multi-generational yeah. family yeah. drama that's in the utterly unsatiric mode, right? And it involves without, you know, hope, hope without spoiling it, like serious illness, serious like grievous loss, deep family secrets, and uh, bitter, bitter, bitter sibling rivalry. And I also want to shout out, in addition to um, Tracy Ellis Ross, uh, Sterling Brown as uh, Monk's brother. I thought that was an yeah. incredible performance. Oscar nominated now. It was phenomenal. I've had some conversations with like other gays in my circles, and they're like, is this stereotypical? And I'm like, I don't care. I like <laughs> That's it. That's interesting. It's fun. He's delivering. <laughs> And he's fu- and he Sammy's fucking angry. That character is really, really dark, bitter, funny. I, mean, I think what I actually love is that they're all angry. They are yeah. all yes. angry. Yes. They just show yeah. it yes. in really different ways. And that's something that it took a few days for me to actually realize or figure out. And I think what I actually love about Monk, not to cut you off, Steve, I'll let you get back to your point, but I I really just (laughs) want to say something that I love about Monk is that not only does he stay unapologetic to seeing his hoax through, but I kind of sort of hate that guy. Yeah, (laughs) He's arrogant in the specific way that he could And he's let... mean to his girlfriend. Yes, he is mean to his girlfriend. Mean to Erica yeah. Alexander, and I don't like that. And who does that? <laughs> who yeah. would? Not me. No one should. But he's <laughs> arrogant in the specific way that he could let a bull loose in a china shop and be surprised to walk in and find everything smashed to bits and then have mm-hmm. the nerve to blame anyone who yeah. might actually think there's something salvageable in it. But Jeffrey yeah. Wright is incredible at being that really arrogant, annoying guy who's mean to his girlfriend, but still really captivating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I think the way he shows anger as a juxtaposition to the way his siblings show anger is really fascinating and a part of what makes both sides actually work for me, but obviously makes the family drama side work more. Yeah, you get these portraits of people who are sitting on enormous reservoirs of pain and resentment vis-a-vis one another and anger. And then you get a little backstory glance here, a little backstory glance there, and you see why. And that, to me, given the three performances of the siblings, that was enormously powerful to suddenly see why he's so tightened and his brother is so you know, sharply cut. Um, can we talk about the ending? I'm yeah. <laughs> intrigued by how he finished this film. And I think it was a beautiful middle finger to expectations, but I wonder what y'all's take on it is. So for me, long story short, this trailer for American fiction that sets up this racial satire about the publishing industry, it primes you to expect at some point in the film, Jeffrey Wright's character, the black male lead, Monk, you expect him to have some moment where he has a, I'm not going to take it anymore, yell fest. You expect a soliloquy, a monologue, in which he tells the good white liberals that they're actually bad, and he yells, and then your fist raises, and ha! (laughs) That never (laughs) happens. That never happens in this movie. And at first I was like, am I mad about that? Did I not get the catharsis I wanted in this film because Jeffrey Wright didn't have his monologue at the end? And then I was like, you know what? This entire movie, I think, is about fooling and disappointing good white liberals and good black liberals expectations. This is Mm. a movie that makes you think it's going one way and then it goes another. So of course it's going to give you an ending that is good, but kind of a head scratcher. And I like that. Can I be a 
point of contention? Can I be a fly yeah. in the ointment? Yeah, because I feel this way about the film today, but next week it might change. Here's... Of all the films this Oscar <laughs> season, I've gone the most up and down with this one. Same. I completely agree. And here's the thing about this movie, and I think this is also my sort of issue with the ending, which isn't actually an issue with the ending, but just is a sort of exasperation with the movie, which is that I'm sort of tired of this belabored question amongst Black creatives that is pondering the acceptance from majority white audiences or white powers that be in their industries about the best, most financially successful ways to kowtow to white audiences. And in that way, I do think the film sort of still feels dated to 2001, which is when the book that when it the is book based off of. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and I think the tension specifically between Monk and Issa Rae's character, to me, is maybe the biggest signifier of that. But Aisha And that's Harris, never resolved, which right. I found quite interesting. Yes, yeah, I, and I agree with that, too. I actually like that that was never resolved. Um, but Aisha Harris mentioned this in her NPR review, and I found myself wondering this while watching as well, which is... In a movie that is supposedly set in today, where is the concern about Black Twitter? Where are the collegiate discussions of the book amongst Black groups on campuses? What are the conversations about how Black people feel about the works that are quote-unquote Black experiences written for white consumption? Where are they in, in the film? Well, yeah. Yeah, and I think when it got to the end... I, it wasn't necessarily that I was disappointed with the ending, which I don't know. I also go back and forth on. Some days I like it. Some days I mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, but it was more uh, like, why are we ending it now? There's so much more interesting stuff that I, I wanted well, you to, to get yeah. into. Yeah. I do think, you know, you allude to this question, like, what would Black Twitter think of this book? I think based on the source material... The conversation around race in the book and the film happens before Black Twitter exists, right? Right. And I think that had the central question of Black acceptance of Black art or whatever, had that question been originally written in a book by Percival Everett in 2023 or 4, it would have been different. I also think that this question will increasingly become obsolete as the monoculture continues to Mm. die and everyone is just finding their micro-communities anyway. You know, like Perhaps. the next great that black author sad. might just, oh, it makes me feel better. Like, <laughs> Does like, it? I, I long for a day when we don't have like the black film of the year or the yes, gay film of the true. year. I long for the day when fans of things can build micro communities strong enough and big enough to support that stuff away from the gaze of the majority. Right. So, I really long for so, that day. So micro communities that still have power to actually make stuff. That That's my... Yes. Right, right. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah, we're good and, with and that. And like, I think that is the future. And I think had Monk been a writer who had started writing in the age of internet and social media, he might have found his micro community of yeah. nerds yeah. who like black guys mm-hmm. writing nerd that's shit. And he might have been yeah. happy. Yeah. yeah. He might have been happy, Very right? true. Very true. But I yeah, this... It. The central questions of this movie are still grappling with monoculture. Yeah. And that is a conversation that I don't think we're going to be having in 10 years. So yeah. it's good Cord made this movie now, not 10 years from now. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh-huh. I love it. All right. Well, I like it when we can end a segment with a quasi-utopian note. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll curtail it there. All right. The movie is American Fiction. It's out in theaters now. It's been uh, heavily nominated. Jeffrey Wright's wonderful in a multiple great ensemble cast performances. Uh, check it out. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we discuss business. We have just one item this week. That's to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to discuss an interactive piece in the New York Times called The Menu Trends That Define Dining Right Now. The folks at the Times collected 121 menus from across the United States, tried to recognize some patterns. We'll discuss some of their findings and talk about menu trends that we like and dislike. If you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, I have some words for you. You can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment, better known as the Slat Plus segment that I just mentioned. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gap Fest. Members get unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall 
if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really, really important to Slate. I can't emphasize that enough. Now I'm being serious. It makes a huge difference to us if you sign up. So please do it today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, on with the show. Okay, well, sitcom auteur Mike Judge has given us such shows as uh, Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, Silicon Valley. He returns now to Peacock, the streaming service Peacock, with the show In the Know. It's an animated stop-motion workplace sitcom centered on a character named Lauren Caspian. He is host of NPR's third most popular show. He is self-centered, oblivious, sold on his own goodness, in addition to this very The Office-like sitcom, it features a cast of annoying eccentrics. There are interviews with real celebrities who appear as their non-animated 3D selves. In the clip, we're going to hear Zach Woods as the radio host, Lauren Caspian. You'll also hear Caitlin Riley as Fabian, one of the show's producers. Jay Smith Cameron as Barb, the executive producer of the show. And uh, let's have a listen. Great interview, Lauren. No, it's a team effort. I'm merely the big daddy. Oh, I also wanted to let everyone know that that homeless gentleman is still in the bathroom. Uh, Barb. Huh? That is hate speech. He is an unhoused person. Actually, the preferred term is person who is currently without housing. No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really very empathetic to the man's situation. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. Uh, but- no, you volunteer at an unhoused shelter. A shelter for persons currently without housing. Well, it just feels very clunky. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it too inconvenient to treat vulnerable populations with respect? How dare you? I was using the term Inuit back in the 90s. I've been spelling women with a Y since before I could spell my name. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> Can I say that? I'm sorry, I just can't even hold it. You don't even I'm need like, a question. You're ready to go. I'm let's sorry. hear it. Like, let's stop. Like, you really think making jokes about white liberals angst over what to call homeless people. You think that's new? You think that's fun? He's just like, he consistently acts like grabbing the lowest hanging fruit. He acts like that's a five course meal. It ain't. Like so much of the humor in this show was entirely predictable. Entirely predictable. And it just felt stale and flat to me. I also think that like, I was gaming this out. I was like, all right, let's say this scenario actually happened in an NPR office. And I can speak to this because I worked at NPR for 13 years and I was an NPR host myself for five or six of them. Let me tell you something about NPR. It is a company that has facilities and operations management. And there are adults watching the store who would say, we can't have an unhoused man in this bathroom all day. And so to see him let this scene play out like that and so many other scenes play out like that, it felt very much like that episode of Euphoria where all the teenagers get in a fight at the school play and the fight keeps going on and never stops. And you're like, where are the administrators? Where is the vice principal? Where is the principal? They do exist. It's the same thing happening with this show. Like, you have all these dumb liberals and no one's keeping the store. There's always someone keeping the store at NPR because it's a company that must make money. And so that was my first big quip with it. So, Nadira, like, point taken, this probably doesn't represent what the interior of, you know, NPR offices in D.C. or the various regional outposts around the country are like. One could still make a funny show that's fanciful about that. Did they do that? I don't know. I guess. I don't have the experience of working for public radio or working at NPR, but I do love a workplace satire and a workplace comedy, and I didn't necessarily hate or love this show at most points. I think because of what... endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) I think because of what Sam was talking about earlier, because it is sort of predictable in in many ways i mostly found it to be boring uh Mm -hmm. again these are not caricatures that i haven't heard before i'm a zillennial myself the character of fabian i found to be quite annoying but also i get it you know this is is how people want to make fun of us it's it's fine it's nothing i haven't heard before and that's kind of how i felt about most of the show but with that being said i 
I do think it has its funny moments. You know, if someone told me that I looked like an undercover cop at an Avril Lavigne concert, I would cry. And I think the joke about J-Lo potentially being a victim of wage theft is actually really funny, given those rumors or accusations <laughs> that she notoriously has stopped people she dines with from tipping servers. So, you know, it has its funny moments. Uh, but I really want to talk about the sort of the style differentiations in the show. So the actual show is stop motion with puppets. And I love stop motion. I think stop motion is so evocative and really specific and obviously handcrafted ways. But then when Lauren interviews people on the show, these are real celebrities who are just in their regular digital form as if they were on a video chat. And it's really clear that they are improving with these celebrities and the names that they get for the show run the gamut from Kaya Gerber and Tegan and Sarah to Mike Tyson extolling the facets of violence as a state of mind and Ken Burns and Hugh Laurie. And I actually and really like... And Jonathan Van Ness, yes. who I think was my favorite part of the show. He's so yes. good. And you know, J-Lo just said... Who's that? They're, J- Jennifer Lopez, obviously. I'm not familiar. I- is she a victim of wage theft? Oh, honey. I really actually liked those interviews, but I think that's kind of as far as I got. The stop motion was cool. The knitwear that the puppets were wearing was really cool. Whoever <laughs> took their little fingers and made all those tiny sweaters did a great job. And I really liked the celebrities. Mm. So I'm curious to hear you guys speak to this. I So... Slate's podcasting division was more or less started by NPR veteran. Most of our producers have worked for NPR, shuffle back and forth between us and them. The shows, panelists have gone on NPR shows, various places. Became familiar with an institution I only knew for, as a listener during most of my life because of the show. To me, what I love about it is my wife is from the deep South, right? And she grew up very much in but not of it. And so for her, NPR was this oasis of, you know, contemplative, thoughtful, um, totally non-sensationalistic journalism. Uh, you know, when when we used to go visit our grandparents down in Alabama, just the fact that all you needed to do was shove the radio dial in the car all the way to the left, search about for three minutes, and you were going to land on some little college radio station that is an NPR affiliate. And... And that, there was something enormously reassuring about its ubiquity through every part of the American continent, no matter where you are. To me, it's an amazing American institution. And it has foibles, but it's a very gentle bad guy if you're searching for bad guys. Why treat it with this level of contempt? Because for me, the dominant note of this show is that it seems to genuinely hate this lead character, right? Like, this figure is utterly hateful to the people who created this television show. There's nothing redeemable or interesting or good or even intelligent about him. He's just a pretentious dweeb. And, you know, some of that shit lands on me, right? So, of course, the show makes me angry in response. Am I misreading it? Am I just taking it personally in this weird... I mean, they don't have me in mind. Don't get me wrong. I'm not deluded, but am I wrong? It's like, it's mean-spirited. I, one, I think that, like, it's possible to respect a place like NPR and also mock it mercilessly because, you know, companies aren't people. Companies are made of people. Um, I think watching this horrible host... I did feel like some of it was like speaking right to me, a former NPR host. It's like, oh shit, am I a man who talks over women in interviews? Oh shit, am I a man who in interviews tries to virtue signal through my interview questions, right? Like all these things, it's like good questions to ask. But I think what the creators of this show were doing when they mock this NPR host so mercilessly, they're also mocking NPR listeners. They're also mocking the people- who listen to these folks all the time and prop them up. The reason Lauren, the host, is such a dick and feels so entitled to be a dick is because there's probably thousands of listeners who tell him every day that he's great, that he's great, right? Right. Um, I'm actually friends with a few of the people who consulted on this show from NPR. And my good friend, Elise Hugh, who's talked about this with Vulture, she was like, yeah, this show is critiquing the NPR audience as much as it is NPR listeners. And as someone who got NPR letters from NPR listeners for years, you think NPR hosts are bad. Some of these listeners, (laughs) I mean, truly pieces of work. And I'm all about content that 
is hopefully asking those folks to be introspective. I think my largest issue, though, with this show is that, like, by parodying extreme liberal woke whiteness, it's still centering whiteness. And NPR, quiet as it's kept, is not quite as white as this show wants you to believe. And I would love to have seen more of the interplay of an organization and people grappling with how a very white organization becomes less white. That, as a workplace drama or workplace comedy, would have interested me. Um, but you don't get that in the workplace comedy parts of the show. You just don't get it. Yeah, I also just want to push back on... I don't know. Okay, here's my history with NPR, you guys. So when I was a kid, I wanted to listen to nothing but the Disney Channel radio station. And my grandmother once told me uh, in her Subaru Outback that uh, her radio was broken and only played NPR. And so for the longest time... (laughs) (laughs) And I believed her. And so for the longest time... Uh, I sort of, that was hanging over the head of my relationship with NPR, I guess. Um, But I came to love it and enjoy it in my adult years, my more formative years. And with, with that, I want to sort of push back on the idea that public radio or NPR specifically isn't sensational. I feel like there's one part of the show that I actually really identified with, which is, and I don't necessarily remember who Lauren is interviewing at the time, but there's this notion that Lauren presents a safe space, but is actually mining for dirt to exploit the guests, right? So they Mm -hmm. put on their NPR voice and they're like, now tell me about the most traumatic point in your life. Or tell me about you yeah. know, like your parents' drama or whatever. Well, tell this me is about the thing. It's like you could, yeah. ten years ago. You can have sensational content without people yelling. Exactly. And let me tell you something. In my many years as an NPR host, I got to be really good at using the whisper talk voice to throw a motherfucking punch. Yep. You know? Yeah. So I I would have loved for that to be more explored, right? I guess what I'm like I guess what we're both saying is like the most interesting places to really dig deep in a contemplative, you know, discussion of NPR and what it means. He didn't go there. He didn't go there. It was just low hanging fruit. Mm, Yeah, I I second that, Sam. And also, I have to say, I didn't find it very funny. There were some chuckles, some yucks. I thought some of the... yeah. Celebrity interview questions were so hilariously, mind-bendingly absurd. Yeah. That was kind of yes. fun. And watching them respond to that on the fly was uh, was pretty good. Anyway, the show is in the know. It's on Peacock. Uh, check it out and let us know what you think. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. Well, I mean, what do the Oscars exist for, Nadira, if not to talk about the Oscars? Actually, watching it's a bit of a bore, and who wins turns out to be, in retrospect, largely irrelevant, sometimes hilariously so. Um, And yet, to chew over it, overthink it, go meta, go meta upon meta, here we are, right? And this year, it handed us the juiciest piece of red meat in um, not nominating... Greta Gerwig for Best Director for Barbie, even though Barbie's nominated for Best Picture and is the highest grossing film of the year. And the Oscars have paid more attention to commercial outcomes uh, in, I would argue, over the last roughly decade. And no uh, nomination for Best Actress for Margot Robbie. Now, every year there are going to be snubs. There's garden variety snubs. There's Leonardo DiCaprio not getting nominated for Best Actor for uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. But these aren't garden variety I think for a fairly obvious reason, this is a feminist picture that cleaned up at the box office and got some rave, rave, rave reviews. What's going on here? Gosh. Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of afraid to say what I actually think is going on here. Oh, well, then oh, say, it, say it, say it. <laughs> Which is basically just white feminism. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Can you necessarily call it a snub if both Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie are nominated for Oscars? I don't know if you can call it an Oscar snub picture. if for they are nominated. Picture, yeah. I mean, Gerwig is also nominated for adapted screenplay. And yeah, Robbie is nominated for a producer and, you know, by form of Best Picture. And the movie made a billion dollars. It is the only woman-directed picture to ever do so. It is inherently a commercial. I think all things considered, the movie is fine. They are fine. They are rolling in their money. They're doing okay. The reason this discourse startles me is because besides the fact that it got so widespread that Hillary Clinton is making Mm. public 
statements yeah. about the valiant achievements of these women in Hollywood. Like, girl. I- <laughs> <laughs> like, Hillary, why are you in it? Why are you in it? Um, it's just no one is sort of doing the math to figure that if these women were to get nominated in these categories, then other women in these categories would have to go or other people would have to go. And I, you know, what do we say to Justine Triet, who directed Anatomy of a Fall? Or what do we say to the other women who also gave amazing performances that were nominated for Best Actress? Uh, you know, I, I... What do you say to America Ferreira, a woman who did get a listen, nomination out of this movie? Listen, what, what... Okay, I wrote an entire piece about how much I love America Ferreira and how much I love to see her get nominated for this award, even though I don't think her performance and technically the script actually makes her worthy of it. But yeah, it's sort of ironic to see these calls of, you know, we've got to protect feminism and this is a front against feminism from people who frankly just haven't mentioned calls for feminism in other areas where it is sort of gravely needed right now. Um, But I do think the uproar about this quote-unquote snub, which I don't actually think is a snub, is actually sort of very telling about the way feminism in a mainstream sense continues to operate well i guess just in the mainstream but particularly in america um and so i think it's a really interesting (laughs) sort of experiment to just watch play out in in real time but it definitely had me scratching my head points taken one thing we should point out though is that is that you know they expanded one category to 10 nominees and Barbie, you sort of feel as though slipped in in the bottom five of the 10 nominees for Best Picture in some sense. And um, so you can understand why that might not quite compensate for no director nominee, but then is nomination. But then as you guys point out, well, go over the five Best Actress nominees. Who are you bumping in that list, right? Go over the five Best Director nominees. Who are you bumping in that list in order to slot in Gerwig and, and Robbie, respectively? Um, I mean, extra inflammatory is that there's a Best Actor nomination for Ryan Gosling, the, you know, the man in the film. Merited, unmerited, scandalous, or he was just maybe like that good in the movie? Merited. Yeah, merited. I mean, this is my thing with the snub of Margot Robbie. When you watch that movie, who actually has the most meat in the film? Who gets the song? Who gets the choreo? Who says more words? Who does more things? Ken. And, like, Greta wrote that, right? So Greta wrote a fuller character for Ken than she wrote for Barbie. And it perfectly makes sense that Ken gets a nomination given what happens in that movie. It's really hard for the Academy to honor the kind of work that Margot Robbie did for Barbie. You know, she's asked to play this role that is flat and stiff because it's a doll and no actress nomination at the Oscars can acknowledge, will acknowledge, does acknowledge the production work that Margot Robbie did to get this film made. You'll recall when Mattel wanted to make Barbie, they went to Margot first, and then Margot found Greta, and then Margot said, Greta, let's do this. So I wish there were a hybrid actress-producer Oscar that she could be nominated for, because that's what she's doing. But yeah, if it's just me watching the movie and saying who has the better performance... It's Ken slash Ryan Gosling because he has more to work with. And I cannot blame the patriarchy for that because Greta Gerwig wrote the movie. I 100% agree with everything you just said, Sam. And I think, I just feel as though our time would be better spent talking about other actors or creators who were actually snubbed. When I think about Charles Melton and I think about the sort of Come really on. fiery run All of he May, had. December. There should have All, been three... Yes. Acting nominations for May December. Yes, one hundred percent agree. May December was great. Charles Melton as a Riverdale alumnus was amazing. Julianne I, Moore's lisp. Julianne mm-hmm. Moore's lisp. Yeah, it's so good. Alone. The cast of Past Lives also, you know, yeah. no nomination. And when yeah. I think about the movie A Thousand and One, the Tiana Taylor led movie which was one of my favorite mm. movies of last year, and I think did top mm. a fair number of top 10 lists from critics. And I think about how silent the discussion about that movie has been come award season. I get actively angry 
Tiana Taylor yeah. is someone who has been fighting against the industry her entire career, whether it be in yep. her music career or her acting career or what have you. And she finally gets this phenomenal breakout role with Josiah Cross playing opposite her. And she's so good. She is so good in this movie that is well-written, that is well-shot and well-directed, that is beautiful and heartbreaking, and no one makes a sound about it. Even though mm-hmm. it's a depiction of a Black woman who's a single mother who, you know, is trying to provide for her son. It's all of the things that we sort of claim that we're hailing when we're talking about feminism and we're talking about Mm -hmm. intersectional feminism and there are crickets there's no one talking about it but instead we are again talking about a movie that made a billion dollars why yeah why well and when you look at the kind of conversation about feminism that barbie is having and it is a movie about feminism it is feminism 101 right it is Things are hard for women compared to men. And it does not at at all ever get into any kind of intersectionality. You know, there is a trans Barbie in that movie. They don't address transness. You know, there is black president Issa Rae Barbie who never addresses racism. (laughs) There is a character who feels like he's gay, but we never say he's gay. And then Kate McKinnon is clearly lesbian Barbie and we don't say it. (laughs) And also Margot and Greta don't need to be saved. That's what I don't like about this conversation. People taking up arms to defend these really wealthy women who are never going to suffer for work ever again in their careers. The movie made a billion dollars. I think they're cool. (laughs) It made a billion dollars. (laughs) It made over a billion dollars. I think think that they are fine. Can I just push back a tiny bit on that? Yes, please do. Please do. I get it. You got to size the violin to the pity party, you know? And, yeah. and I, I I don't disagree that, you know, people who are, you know, as you say, swimming in accolades, money and status from this movie, you can still be a little stung. And it may even be somewhat, in some respects, meaningful that the community in which you make your projects, you know, pointedly fails to honor the work you've done it's hard not to find a significance in it that's apart from you know all the other success you might have had from the project but point taken we you know the the world's smallest violin here here's the thing i actually think that snubs are worth talking about perhaps it's just my broken media culture brain that loves talking about them i just don't necessarily agree that this is a snub but when i think about adele winning her Grammy for Album of the Year, standing Mm. in front of Beyonce and saying that Beyonce Mm. deserved it, and then Beyonce Mm. losing again to Taylor Swift. To Harry Styles. Oh, right. It was Harry Harry Styles. Styles. Yeah. 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 Harry Styles, who I love, but stood on stage and said, this never happens to people like (laughs) me. Again, I get angry. I get genuinely upset. It feels like you can be, again, like you were saying, Steve, it feels like, You can have all of the money and you can reach mass audiences, but it does hurt to not be recognized by your peers or to actually be recognized by your peers who stand on stage and say that you deserve the award they are currently holding, but to not be recognized by the people who actually make those decisions about who gets the award. Yeah. And like when I think of snubs at award shows like the Oscars, um, I think like what are the Oscars really for and who do they help the most? Um, an Oscar for Greta Gerwig is much less helpful to Greta Gerwig than an Oscar for someone no one knew about before. And so with these nominations, I'm most excited about the ones who kind of came out of nowhere. I'm excited that now Core Jefferson is going to be getting great work for years because of right. American fiction and its nominations. It might not win any Oscars. But, like, the nomination opens a door. And so when I think of snubs, I want to think about that. And I want to think about how the Oscars and other award shows are actually functioning best when they open doors for folks we've never heard of, not when they give more flowers to the richest, most successful woman director of all time. (laughs) Of all time. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, opinions and back and forth on this one. Uh, Let us know what you think. Let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Sam, let's start with you. What did you bring us this week? I'm bringing 
an old album that I have been loving, loving, loving for a few months now. And it's all I tell my friends about when they ask what I'm listening to. I actually have it on vinyl right here to show you guys. It is an album by the R&B group LaBelle called Chameleon. LaBelle is Patti LaBelle's singing group that she had before she went solo. It's her and two other women, and they can sing. This is the cover art for Chameleon. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. Yes. Isn't it beautiful? That's the front. This is the back. And what I'm showing uh, these other folks here on the mic with me is this album cover that has Patty and her co-stars in the most beautiful Afro-futurist get-up with their mouths open, teeth smiling. And it sets you up for an album that is just full of R&B, funk, dazzle. They are singing top to bottom every track. What I love about this album is that all of them can sing. Something happened around the 80s or 90s. You know, R&B groups, boy groups, girl groups, they started to have like one person who could really sing and the rest of them kind of couldn't. Everyone <laughs> in LaBelle can sing. Uh, this album, Chameleon, I put it on on vinyl in the morning as I'm making my coffee, as I'm starting my day, and it just gives me this bolt of energy. If you want to pick me up, if you want an album to work out to, if you just want to hear some good singing, this old LaBelle album called Chameleon is delightful. And going back through that history of Patty at that time, it really makes you respect her more as kind of the mother of Afrofuturism in pop. Mm. And we see that legacy directly in everything Beyonce has done visually around Renaissance. It, it is wonderful to see that through line and it's always a good moment to listen to patty labelle saying because yes. come on yeah so yeah labelle chameleon nadira what uh what do you have for us so not to be one note but my endorsement is quite similar okay. <laughs> um yeah i okay first of all one thing i want to say about miss patty is that i'm from philly patty. she from philly okay. and okay. you know we love ourselves a philly girl um and so yes. speaking of philly groups um silk the soul funk group from philadelphia that released the album midnight dancer wow. in 1979 Wait, silk of meeting in my bedroom fame <laughs> no <laughs> No, okay. Not them. So there was not, another silk. Right, so not to be confused with the 1990s R&B male group from Atlanta, Georgia of the same name, <laughs> whose most popular song is Freak Me, not that group. Same <laughs> subtext of their music, different groups. So we're talking okay. the soul funk group in the Philly soul era uh, that released the album Midnight Dancer in 1979. I love that album. I find it often overlooked in the general discussion of 70s, 80s soul funk. And being from Philly, I'm trying to learn more about the more unsung artists of the Philly soul era. So being a fan of Midnight Dancer, the album, I plugged that into the Spotify function where you can create a radio station based on a song or artist. Mm -hmm. And I got a mm -hmm. ton of great music suggestions that I had never heard before or some that I had heard before but had forgotten about, including a beautiful song called Silly Wasn't I by Valerie Simpson, as in half of Ashford and Simpson, music by Odyssey, mm. both Odyssey bands, because apparently there were two bands called Odyssey and I always thought that they were one band, but that's for <laughs> a different podcast. Uh, songs from Lattimore's 1976 album. Album, it Ain't Where You Been, Sonia Spence's song, Let the Love Flow On, which mm, also led me yes. to look a little bit more into Sonia Spence, who was a Jamaican singer, and I'm half Jamaican, and huh. so I did not know this. And she actually has a, some beautiful reggae songs from back in the day that are really worth listening to. Um, hit songs from the British group Loose Ends, and hits from Barbara Acklin. And I want to shout out mm. Barbara Acklin, the soul singer who was most popular during the 60s and 70s. Um, it seems like the only thing on Spotify that you can have from her or hear from her is a compilation of her 20 greatest hits. But they are truly so great, all 20. And I specifically love her song, Am I the Same Girl, which will be very familiar. Once you put it on, you'll hear it and you'll be like, oh yeah, I know this song. Oh, you 
I guess this is an endorsement for the soul funk group Silk, the playlist radio creating functions on music streaming platforms, and Barbara Acklin. All three rolled into one. I love that you bring this up because I was just telling a friend last week, quiet as it's kept, the Spotify algorithm has gotten really good. It's gotten so good. It's good. good. And I hate to admit it because I believe in real people picking out real music for other real people, but damn, that algo works. (laughs) Yeah, so definitely whatever your favorite album or song is or just something that's stuck in your head this week, just try the Create create Radio function. Create Radio Station, yeah. Yeah. And just see what pops up. I'm I'm sure you'll get some great finds that you've never heard before. Okay, well, um, going in a totally uh opposite direction i am a sucker for kind of bewitching half forgotten home recordings by doomed folkies and so or they don't have to be home recordings necessarily so like jackson c frank or you know the just uh, the or the home recordings of nick drake which are freaking amazing and i'm shocked to discover one that i was totally unfamiliar with Sandy Denny, who was the lead singer for Fairport Convention and has one of the most exquisitely beautiful singing voices I think I've ever heard and wrote one of the most enduring, like an exquisitely beautiful classics in the folk canon. Who knows where the time goes? I mean, you know, just covered endlessly and, uh, and beautifully by various artists. There are just a bunch of old home recordings of her. I think she's famously sort of, performance phobic or um she was doomed in ways that i'm afraid i i don't know the exact specifics of but she was just a beautiful guitarist and singer and songwriter and and they're wonderful i mean they're just lo-fi gorgeous and really haunting So they're the early home recordings it's by Sandy Denny, D-E-N-N-Y. We will post a link to it. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my God, this was delightful. I feel like I, in some moments, had some like get off my lawn energy, but y'all were so nice and accommodating <laughs> and excuse my rants. Thank y'all. This was delightful. You're hardly the first to bring that energy to this uh, hour of programming, <laughs> Sam. And uh, Nadira, as always, what an enormous pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me, as always. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our introductory theme music is by the composer nicholas patel our production assistant is kat hong our producer is cameron drews for sam sanders and adira goff i'm Stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon 